0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. It's a beautiful spring day here in Buenos Aires. And my guests this week are Stephen Knight, also known as the Godless Spellchecker, and Iram Ramzan. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for for rubbing
1: in the uh, Buenos Aires fact there, knowing full well I'm sat in a dark, dingy Manchester attic.
2: Um, You also forgot to mention that I was crowned, well, unofficially, Miss Manchester 2017. Is that, did you, where did
1: you pull that from? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Because I know for a fact that I was crowned Miss Manchester 2017.
2: I thought you were going by gender neutral terms these days.
1: I, it depends what mood I'm in. I don't think you should pigeonhole me in that way, Iram.
2: I'm sorry, I forgot. Labels <laughs> are for clothes, not people. <laughs> we'll stop by. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry,
0: sorry. I do okay. apologize. You can, you can. That's okay. You can continue. <laughs> this makes <laughs> my job very easy. Um, so I invited you on. Uh, I'm. I mean, I'm happy for the conversation to go in whatever direction it meanders into, mm-hmm. but. I want to start by asking about the state of secularism in the UK. Mm. Mm. So, officially, the UK is a secular society. Mm. But I gather there are a lot of, um, well, I th- I don't know if actually, well, we assume that it's a secular society. I, mean, it's, but it's, I it's by large,
2: it is actually still technically a Christian country, even yes. if... Secular uh, in
1: yeah. um, practice Maybe. and nature, Maybe. in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah, people overwhelmingly support secularism when you when you poll them, and the uh, the non-religious are now the majority in in the uh, in the UK f- for the first time in the longest time. So I think the issue is. That social attitudes and the the general feeling of the population in general doesn't doesn't map up with our antiquated Christian centric government uh, and and faith schools and you know a privilege we give in the House of Lords to bishops and, and admissions policies in schools and and where we where we think public funds should go. Um, so there needs to be a lot of reform in them areas. So we are it's it's very strange inverse because America is. Um,
2: uh, yeah, that's constitutionally yeah, that's secular. They've got
1: the First Amendment, yeehaw. So they're they're a secular country in in nature, in well in, in name. Uh, however, they have very high levels of religiosity. Whereas England, we're sort of a Christian country in every way you could say so officially in terms of government um, and schools and, and the monarchy. Yeah, our attitudes, the general population, are overwhelming overwhelmingly secular. And when you poll people and ask them. Do you think religion should play a part in uh, the economy or politics or, or schools? We'll overwhelmingly say no. So we're secular in, in identity, just not necessarily in legislation.
2: And we have kettles here right. as
1: well. And we have kettles here, which the, U- the US do not have. You have They have guns. We have kettles.
0: And I think we know so on the battlefield. which wins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if they come for us, we can we can boil our water at them. <laughs> First, they came for the, the f- kettles. Exactly, and said, hey. throw steam in their face and throw scalding tea over their laps. Mm. That'll show them, Iona, Wow, I, I didn't realise you had such a it's violent escalated. streak in it's you. It escalated very I mean, quickly. It did. <laughs> Just like
2: let's go from secularism to boiling, boiling people, people to death. <laughs> yeah, wonderful.
0: <laughs>
1: um,
0: so, um, tell me about some of the ways in which uh, the UK continues to be um, not a secular country. Um, tell me about some of that kind of some of the religious privilege that is still existing in existence there, and yeah, I want to hear more about this so here in Argentina uh this is also this is officially a secular republic mm. and it's probably one of the least religious places in the in Latin America. I don't know, I have no idea what the actual statistics are on this. And I think most people would tick Catholic if you asked them what their religion was. Um, I think most people would not, would not check the um, nun box on that. But church attendance doesn't seem to be very high. I very rarely see any priests or nuns. And what are they up to, I don't. Though? That's
1: what you've got to ask yourself. What are they up to?
0: Yes, <laughs> and I don't. I don't get the feeling that it's a very important part of most people's uh, lives. There are a few exceptions. So um, religion is definitely a class, um, a class thing. So people who are working class are more likely to be Catholic. That's my impression. More likely to be observant. And taxi drivers often will cross themselves, especially older taxi drivers. Will cross themselves when they pass a church. Or when they have you when as you're a driving. passenger. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Or when I, they have uh, you as a
0: passenger. Maybe that's the
2: <laughs> I mean <laughs> no, there's, there's a reason. I think you're I think you're sensing a pattern now. You're like, oh, every taxi driver <laughs> I see is crossing themselves. Yeah. That's so weird. Only when
0: they pa- only when they pass a church. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and there there is also a church that is very close to where I used to live, to my old flat, um, which is the church of San Exposito. And that particular saint is said to be the patron saint of job seekers. And that church is is very popular. (laughs) And when it's San Exposito Saints Day, they actually have um, people standing outside in the street, and there are queues literally around the entire block of people waiting to go in and light candles to San Exposito. And sometimes they put a little um, rack of candles outdoors with an icon there so that outside the church you can also light your candle and ask San Exposito to help you get a job.
1: Hmm. Well, it's one way of doing it. I mean, I would typically recommend monster.co.uk. <laughs> Uh-huh. Oh, I'm not really a fan that. of
2: monster, uh, you know, I prefer Gorkana Jobs myself. Well,
1: obviously we have I'm a not sectarian disagree for... right away and, and must that's go to a... war to the death. Um, but going back to your original question about the ways in which religion, specifically Christianity, is, is privileged in the UK. So we, we have a third of our public-funded schools have a religious character. So that's public money going into faith schools. And there's obviously... Um, an issue there with children being indoctrinated into one ideological religious worldview, uh, being, you know, proselytization, indoctrination paid for with public funds, which, which is a huge issue. And these, um, organizations, sorry, schools, religious schools can, can discriminate based on religion in their admissions policy. So pupils who need to get into this school, very often their their parents will have to go and pretend to be religious for a very long period of time and, you know, do community work or go to the uh, church every week to in order to get their child admitted into this school. And it's strange as well, even if you're, a child that lives close to a school, if you're like in an urban area and the, the choice is very, very little uh, and there's a religious school near you and you're not religious, that school can actually prioritize a pupil that lives far, far away from that school if they've got the same religious identity as that school. Uh, so sort of disadvantaging the, the the pupil that lives nearby if the school's oversubscribed. Is. Whereas, you know, religious people have the same level as of, of access to faith schools and, you know, non-faith state funded schools as well. Um, these schools can also discriminate on their employment policies. So the the uh, the teachers they hire often have to chime with the religious sensibilities of the school. The I mean, this goes against the, I mean, this is an exemption in the Equality Act. Religions have exemptions in the UK Equality Act, which is a very strange thing. Um, but mm. even teachers... Um, can be fired at these schools if their personal behavior goes against the character, these religious sorry, uh, traditions and characters of the school as well. So that that's one way. And I think it's the most important way because I don't know if we mentioned at the beginning, uh, religious trends are going downwards, specifically Christianity in Britain. And the only way you you can really keep this alive, and it tends to be the main focus of religious lobby groups and religious parents, is the schooling system. This is the way yeah. that you have a sort of a captive audience. Um, and it's just... Right. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Oh, have there have there been examples of people being fired recently? Can you give us an example? Um, there was that one case in a Jewish school. Do you
2: remember that? I, I um, don't.
1: I do know there are case studies uh, which I'll have to look into. But there are there have been issues and conflict conflicts. Um, I, th- I think I'm sure there was an issue of someone being gay being forced out of a role in a Catholic school. But I will have to double check that. Yeah,
2: there's been there's been a few. Um, I mean, schools um you know schools are one example but the other is in uh in parliament so we have two mm. chambers and the in the house of lords the the bishops um are entitled to sit in the house of lords so there are 26 of them there um purely because of religious privilege there's no yeah. other reason why they should be there they're unelected
1: um, or completely yeah. unelected and they're, they're allowed all to of them be are unelected
2: yeah yeah, yeah. Well, i mean well every all of them are unelected in the House of Lords anyway, but um, the fact that they're unelected and they're religious and they're, you know, senior bishops, I think, uh, just really, uh, it just makes it that much more worse and undemocratic yeah. as well.
1: And the, the the landscape of the country is completely changed due to immigration. We're not, you know, it's not just Christianity anymore. We're kind of plural pluralistic in our in our worldviews and religious faiths. And, and the best way to protect everyone's religious belief or lack thereof is to make the the state completely neutral on matters of religion and uh, we're not there yet and um the thing is, if, if Christians are able to demand special privileges of this nature within the state and their their religion's on the decline publicly when other religions take over, which which trends tend to suggest Islam may do at some point, uh, I mean, what by what grounds can we refuse people of other faith the same privileges if they're more representative of, of Britain in general? Um, so it's it's one of them things where it's, it's trying to convince believers and, and legislators that the best deal for believers and non-believers alike is to have a a secular, secular state.
2: But that's the problem though. Whenever there, whenever people have this debate about secularism, um, you, you always get people saying, Oh, but you know, um, atheism and secularism led to Stalin's Hmm. gulags and things (laughs) like that. And, and usually people, I think maybe it's because people, in this country especially, don't like rapid change um, and in a short space of time. So, you know, completely secularizing everything would, I don't know, I think most, I think a lot of people might not want that to happen straight away. Um, It's hard to say, actually. Um, Yeah, I think think it's because of this country's Christian heritage and they seem to, I think there's still a bit of ignorance around what secularism is as well. Um, they automatically think secularism means atheism and that means people will be banned from practicing their religion or something, which it doesn't.
1: Just as a, mm-hmm. another example as well, I mean, we can talk about how I think the, the fact that secularism has become a dirty word unfailing and that's, that's sometimes the fault of secularists and sometimes it's the uh, the fault of people who wish to portray it that way but another thing i don't think we mentioned as well aside from the the faith school aspect of it we have we actually um have to have collective worship of a christian character in every school in, in the uk in, a-
0: in every school yeah. including um, and is, including for example a jewish school or yeah
1: it's, it sounds very north korean um, but in state schools that I don't have a religious character we have to you have to have collective worship uh of a Oh and in councils
2: as well. Yeah. You have to have that at councils as well. So each um town and city opens will with have prayers
1: sometimes. A
2: council. Yeah, and when they have a full council meeting, they're open with a prayer. Uh, and in my hometown there was a bit of a fuss recently because um the mayor uh, is Muslim oh, yeah. and they started Just in um, the yeah, yeah, yeah. So they started the council meeting uh, with with the Islamic prayer, and um, a, f- a few really right wing groups were just going absolutely mental about it. But that's um, the thing, though, and, isn't
1: it? If you if you allow for the Christian version yeah, exactly. of it, by what argument or principle then can you deny this? Muslim? you can't, can, yeah. can
2: you? Because it just make, it just it just looks really hypocritical. Yeah. So either you have it for everyone, or you just don't have it for anyone
0: yeah yeah well, I feel like in in you can see the extreme of that in India, where it's become almost a sort of arms race, um, you know we're gonna we're going to um mic up the um the Azan as loud as possible while these other people over there are doing their Hindu chanting into giant microphones and um you know it's it's just it's it becomes a a kind of competition. As to who can be the most obnoxious in their religiosity. Yeah, um,
1: I mean Iran might know a bit. Well, we'll know a lot more about this than I do. But there's a fair number of Sharia courts in in the UK as well, and uh, obviously anyone living in the UK. Is uh, protected by UK law, so if if there's a somebody who feels they're getting an unfair treatment in a Sharia court, they can then extend it to you know the, the rules that apply, you know the laws that apply to everyone else in other courts. Except there's a high sort of uh, almost like a shame culture surrounding that. Many of the minorities who who have their civil matters ruled by Sharia courts either don't know. It, there's an alternative, or that they think that there's going to be huge consequences within the communities they live in if they don't adhere to the judgments of these Sharia courts, which are overwhelmingly in favor in favor of men in matters of, you know. Um, sort of uh, marriage, uh, divorce proceedings, um, child custody, inheritance, things like that. They they can take it to to the other courts, but of course, a lot of them either don't know they can or don't wish to because they think that this is the the right way to do things. So uh, this good organization called the One Law for All in the UK, run by Marion Mars, who does a lot of work trying to challenge this kind of thing. Because a lot of people don't really seem to understand the fact that even though, the law of the land still applies to these Muslim communities. A lot of them don't feel comfortable challenging the Sharia courts that are making huge, huge decisions about their, their future and current situation.
0: Yeah, I'm really shocked that they have Sharia courts at all. I mean, even even though they don't have uh, legal standing, official legal standing, I'm quite um, stunned. I was quite stunned to hear that they exist. Yeah,
2: I mean, um, there's, uh, there's quite a few well-known big ones. And and then there are uh, a lot of others that I think we don't really know about. Um, so the, the estimate is that it could be anywhere from 30 to 80. But there could be more than that um, because, you know, anyone can set up this Sharia council. Um, and because they're not regulated or anything, uh, people, and mostly it's women, who go there don't like the treatment, um, that they uh, face, they've got no uh, course of redress, they can't complain to anybody. And there was a review into uh, Sharia councils and a lot of people gave evidence into that. And um, the the Home Office decided it wouldn't um, recommend regulation because that's what some groups were pushing for, that they'd be regulated so effectively. That would mean the recognition of Sharia, and... Um, but um, the, what then happened after was that the, the, the recommendation was that people, uh, Muslim couples, should get a civil marriage first and then get an Islamic uh, ceremony so that women could get protection under the law. And I was at a uh, uh, talk recently by Elham She's a Swiss Muslim uh, academic um, and she's been researching this. She's written a book about Sharia law in the UK. Um, and she goes into the history of it, how it was an Islamist project. And um, she's spoken to so many people who have had very bad treatment. And she was saying that actually they should make it compulsory for people to have a civil marriage uh, because that's what happens in, I think, France and Switzerland. So in Switzerland, if you get married, you have your civil ceremony, and then you go you, sh- you go and show your certificate to, um, say, the imam or something. That means you're Islamically married as well. And then when you also get divorced under civil law, that's it. That's your uh, religious divorce covered as well. And that's why people over there are covered uh, legally. They have their legal rights. So there's no way they can get taken advantage of like they do, uh, in this country. Um, uh, but yeah.
1: Yeah. There's that triple talak, isn't there? You can basically, a man, if, if it's not legally recognized marriage and, and the man's decided he's, he's had enough, he can just, you know, sp- Vocalizing an incantation three times, and they're, they're effectively divorced in the eyes of Allah. And the, the woman has no financial <laughs> redress or rights to you know property and things like that, that maybe she would have if it was exactly. uh, legally Anything recognized. And India's marriage.
0: outlawed it now. India's made it right. a criminal offense. Yes. In, in India's
1: more progressive on this front.
0: Yes, I actually was, um, uh, I actually saw the protests. I was walking past, the, there were huge um, mm-hmm. protests from the Muslim community. Uh, about the outlawing of Triple Talak. The problem in India is that although India is on paper um, also a secular state, so many concessions have been made to religious groups um, that uh, as soon as you take away one of the concessions, everybody starts Mm. crying foul. Like, well, you took this away from us, but you're still allowing Hindus to do this, and you're allowing Christians to do that. Um, and of course, the answer is that all of these um, special, all of these kinds of special dispensations and allowances for religion have to go. But that's not a very popular stance in India. Right. Um, well, I think it's a very sort of tricky subject here um, because,
2: uh, you know, there's so many accusations of Islamophobia thrown around here Um Sorry, I, I should really should have made a disclaimer at the beginning. Um, I, I've got a really sore throat, and it's uh, sort of really painful to speak sometimes. Uh, so I hope I'm uh, not sounding too bad right now. Um, but um, mashaAllah, uh,
0: see what I mean? Um, but but <laughs> well, thank you for thank you for doing this anyway. And you do sound very sexy. Thank you. So you achieve
2: that aim. See, this is this is why many Muslim scholars tell women not to speak in public because their voice is part of their private parts and would, you know, wow. stir desire. You know, it, that's a true <laughs> that's a true story, by the way. Uh, Yes. Anywho, um, but um,
0: doctor... <laughs> especially when they have a especially, cold. Especially, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: whether I look sexy or not, that's a very different matter. But anyway, um, but the point that a lot of um, people who are advocating for just one law and outlawing these Sharia councils is that, you know, if you let these people regulate them themselves. If you say, well, okay, um, you run this council, you have to make sure you do X, Y, and Z to ensure that um, you're treating women equally, you're doing this, you're not discriminating against anyone. Th- these councils have been running for God knows how many years, decades even, and they've still not managed to sort out their own affairs. So you can't leave it to certain people, you can't leave it to one or two. Um, benign or progressive Sharia councils because the vast majority won't do that. Um, the vast majority don't do that and up until now they haven't done that. So the state needs to intervene in this and 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 just make it, I think, make it compulsory for couples to have a um, civil marriage and then get um, a religious uh, marriage certificate afterwards um, because otherwise you're you're leaving you're leaving these very vulnerable women in the hands of usually bearded men. Because how many women are on the Sharia uh councils as well? And even the ones that are are going to be, you know, their their mindset is going to be very similar to the men that are um on yeah. the
1: board. This is another issue we have with our government's relationship with quote unquote community leaders, once again, often bearded men, completely unelected, but they act as a gateway into the, the quote unquote Muslim community. And uh, they're always deeply unrepresentative of the you know mainstream mus- Muslim opinions and that they're, they're unelected, but they, they act as the mouthpiece. We have various um, interest groups in the UK, which are very nefarious. If you scratch the surface, you look at you know, the Muslim Council of Britain, you know, Muslim public affairs committee mend the things that actually do um, liaise with the government who are not representative of the muslim voice in any way so we you know that we could do with a push towards the government engaging with communities like they would any other community and that's through elected officials
0: right i really i really despise actually self appointed spokespeople for communities of uh, all kinds yes. i mean I, and it's always the people who are the eagerest the, the eagerest well, that's they not are a eager. word the people who are the <laughs> the people who are the most eager to make their voices heard and to um, put their opinions forth and to be uh, to to influence policy etc those are those tend to be the loudest voices tend to be the most extreme voices usually their
1: only talent is to be available
0: <laughs> yeah, someone, mm, some producer mm, from a TV right. channel or
2: radio station calls them and says, yeah. "Hi, we need um, we need a, a Muslim face to talk about Sharia. Um, can you please come on the show?" Yeah, sure. Um, and then, unfortunately, everyone else because they've got jobs, they're unable to.
1: Yeah, I've I've had so many uh, radio requests and, and TV requests, and I've been like, "Well, I'm uh, I'm at work, so that's the end of that." But you know. Mohammed Shafiq's always available.
2: I've not seen him lately, but, you know, they always have (laughs) the. Maybe he's got a job. (laughs) He does have a job, actually. He does. And I'm surprised he still manages to get interviews done at the same time. Um, Maybe he's doing them in his lunch hour or break. I don't know. That's dedication right there.
1: Here's what is interesting, though, because Iram touched on a great point there, because whenever we... um, She gets one, one an episode usually. And... (laughs) A, whenever, whenever they get somebody on TV, they have to be aesthetically Muslim or conservative Muslims in order to pass the right. litmus test. So I've heard from people who've been asked on TV stations before as the Muslim voice, as like female um, activist or liberal Muslims, and then the producers said, "Well, do you wear the hijab?" And the woman's been like, "Well, no, I don't wear the hijab." And they're like, "Ah, okay. Well, we, we need we need somebody." Who wears the hijab? So they need that for the optics, so people can point and say, "That's the Muslim voice." Yeah, because people are and
2: stupid. They can't. They can't look at stupid. a person. They're like, "Oh, this person that they're, they're they're brown, but they're wearing clothes like me. This is confusing." Whereas they can see a hijab in there. Like, ah, Muslim. Me understand now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that costuming is really important, and that seems to. I think that also leads to a lot of confusion of issues. So, you know, when, when uh, Gap or Marks & Spencer, maybe we'll get onto this, Marks & Spencer's hijabs for oh school kids, um, for school girls. But um, before we get onto that topic, you know, whenever some company wants to represent diversity, then they stick a girl in a hijab in there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that will kind of represent Muslims. Um, and of course, that normalizes hijab. Um, for children, mm. um, which I have, you know, a lot of problems with. But you know, there's they are not even necessarily trying to say that they approve of hijab; they're just trying to kind of show the stereotypical uh, Muslim. So the I problem is in that. that know, kind of stereotype
1: I think thing. they're responding to market demand.
2: They are, is, but the which thing is, is more concerning. that is concerning. But the thing is. Um, I, I know more Muslim women who do not wear a hijab. I mean, I've seen more wearing it now, but I would M- say... Yoram M-
1: knows a lot of whores, is what she's saying.
2: <laughs> well, uh, speaking as a whore, um, <laughs> I, I know many who don't wear a hijab. No, seriously, um, in, in my... Whores have thing, more fun. Well, uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, in my family alone, there's only one person who actually wears hijab, and even then she wears a lot of makeup with it and looks very chic and fashionable. Um, the rest of them do not wear a hijab. They don't see the point of it. Um, you know, and I think the average Muslim person is very much like that in the UK. They, they don't necessarily wear a hijab. They don't necessarily wear these traditional, quote unquote, stereotypical outfits. Um, but unfortunately... Um, as, as uh, you know, we've just pointed out before, there's uh, m and has started doing these hijabs for young girls and um, there is a demand for that. I don't think it's I, th- I still don't think it's um, a majority, but I think it's it's growing um, and it's usually because of um, certain reactionary, very conservative uh, voices that are being given too much credibility and seen as representative, um, uh, and and unfortunately they're seen as like the more authentic Muslims. And yeah. MNS is like, oh well, you know, we're being asked to do this. Um, there's a need for it, and if we can make money, why not? Um, and I think what the most disturbing part of that was that the medium fit a, f- a three to four year old girl, which makes me think, mm-hmm. oh, who is the small? designed for uh it's disturbing uh, why why yeah. are you even having little girls in hijab in the
0: first place um um, wasn't it also part of their school uniform? Yeah, I was uniform, just going to bring certain... that up. So that,
1: that's one of the huge issues I have with, with this and faith schools in general with, with young kids. So we're already filing them in on ideological lines and saying, you're the Jewish kid, you're the Christian kid, you're the Muslim kid, and that's the environment you're going to be educated in. And all these other people, all these people who would normally just be people you learned from or played with or forged lifelong friendship with, with all of a sudden they're the other. And you live in your little community, in your little bubble, and there's no cohesion, there's no integration. And that's, that's a really big failing, especially for children who need to mix, Huge. who need yeah. to learn from each other. And that, that can only benefit society as a whole when children interact in this manner. And then I think Richard Dawkins made a great example a while back and, and said, you wouldn't accept a, a parent saying, this is my little Daniel, he's four years old, he's a, he's a conservative. Or he's a he's a member, of, you know. He's a Labour voter, uh, you know. He's a member of he's, he's for the unions. We just wouldn't accept that kind of thing because that child's not got the capacity to make that decision for themselves yet. We,
0: well, we make that joke about the woke eight-year-olds, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and <we would> <laughs> yeah, a Brexit a meme on social media. Yeah. Yes, but exactly. well, the funny thing is
2: when this hijab topic comes up and they talk about um, young girls who, you know, they just want to imitate their mothers. Um, I'm I'm thinking, well, if I tried to imitate my mother when I was younger by putting on makeup and trying her heels on, I would have had a shoe around the head. Um, so <laughs> I don't know.
0: We're returning to violence here. We are here. first Kettles down <laughs>
2: shoes. Um, so I think it's complete bollocks. Um, I mean, even if they're copying their mothers, doesn't necessarily make it right. You wouldn't allow a child uh, who's four or five years old to wear makeup or um, wear high heels because they're for adults or you know you could start experimenting with things like that maybe when you're in your teens and you're a bit older and you understand these things um, but I, I really want to ask those parents okay so you're just allowing her to express herself well, what if you ch- your daughter one day comes down and she's wearing a mini skirt. Will you allow her that expression? No, you wouldn't. So please do not talk about choice. That It's not about choice. Absolutely not.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think we, we I think, I hope, I think me and Iram agree as much as I don't like it personally, but I think, a parent has the right to bestow their religion onto their child. I just don't think it should be done in publicly funded institutions. I don't think I should be paying or contributing towards that process with my tax money to let schools push an Islamic agenda or a Catholic agenda or a Jewish agenda onto small, malleable minds. I just think children should have the schooling system. It should be of the same character for all children in a roundabout way. I think religion should be treated objectively. And I think that should also be intertwined with sort of secular philosophical teachings and humanist teachings at at the same time. And it's not what we're finding is that one religious view is promoted and prioritized depending on the school it's coming from. So children are getting a very skewed look at the, uh, the world, especially in regards to sort of sexual education as well, that can be a huge problem for many religious schools. So children are reaching the age of puberty, really unequipped to, to know in full detail, the, the changes that are coming, the, the risks, sexual encounters can carry, you know, the risk of pregnancy, contraceptives, things like that, all things that should, you know, at a reasonable age be taught in an objective manner to help the child, but these things are being denied and neglected due to the religious agenda of these institutions.
2: And you know what the most frustrating part is that, is that our government keeps talking about integration. It keeps talking about the problem of of extremism. And you think, how on earth are you helping communities integrate when you're dividing them up um, from the age of four or five? that's that's not good for integration at all.
1: Yeah, we've got a little problem as well in terms of the pushback we see against this perceived dominance of Islam or the increase of Islam in, in Britain. There's a lot more people... Hitching their wagon to traditional Christian values. Now, even if they're not overtly Christian themselves, or you know, when the census papers roll around, they put down Christian because that's the British one, and they want to give two fingers to this Islam there so you can get Right, everywhere. and um, mm-hmm. we've seen uh, we've seen a lot of that in public speakers as well. I mean, I know Jordan Peterson's massive. He he talks Wells playing hide the ball with whether or not he is a believer. He talks up Christian values. I know a uh, mutual pal of ours, Douglas Murray. Um, he he
0: talks up. Yes, I was going values. to ask about. I was going to ask about Douglas actually because I know he's someone you have a lot of time for, yeah. um, and um, and I also think I have a very very um, ambivalent feelings about uh, Douglas's work, um, and um, I think uh, one of the things that I have most trouble with is that is his argument that. In order to resist a kind of growing Islamization, you need to counter that with a stronger sense of Christian identity and Christian yeah. heritage yeah we actually did actually, we did actually put that to him because
2: when I was reading his book, The Strange Death of Europe," that's the one thing I picked up on, and you know we put that to him and said, "You know, can you really suggest that that's the solution because that's that to me isn't progress that to me is like you're going back
1: in time. Yeah, I mean, and this, it's very reactionary as well. Um, I think there's, there's probably more to it, though, in a sense, because when he's, I mean, I've been reading a lot recently as well about the. I mean, if we completely eradicate religion or strong religious belief to it, and it leaves the the hole open for other ideas to fall into, I'm not sure that's preferable either. And you know, humans. There's part of me that thinks that maybe humans need a concept or a story or something to unify around even if they don't believe in it literally, you know, I mean, I suppose what I'm getting at is a sort of neutered watered down church of England, Christianity, Um, uh, you know, is that more of a preferable alternative to mainstream Islam uh, or a a sort of secular consumerism? And uh, these questions to me are not answered yet. I I agree with Iram that if he was to reinforce Christianity in any sense, it would be a retrograde. However, is the Christianity of today's England, this sort of wishy-washy, hippie, do unto others kind of thing, is that really the worst public, uh, sorry, worst uh, national character for our country? Me, as a sort of baby-eating atheist, say get rid of it get rid of it all uh, but i think there's a question there about identity and, and what replaces christianity uh, and what what arises in the hangover of uh, an increase in secularism
2: i think that's the problem that we have that yeah. um as as people become non-religious
1: is what comes worse yeah. next sorry it's what yeah. comes next worse even
2: yeah what what's after that how do we identify ourselves um so
1: you're not you getting know. me um Going to the church anytime soon, or identifying with Christian values, and I'm I'm obviously of the belief that any good you can derive from Christianity is available already in in perfectly good, non spooky, secular form. So I don't think it's essential in any way. I think I think Douglas is onto something with the identity crisis, but I think his solutions uh, are just wrong, essentially,
0: and they just won't work. No. Um, you know, I have a friend who's a vicar, and. Every year, the parishioners are older and older. Um, you know the Church of England, which is kind of a religion that's almost not religious. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's it's. The, but the reason you find it inoffensive is uh, relatively inoffensive. I'm assuming is because it's almost not Christian. A religion. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs>
2: Um, it's, yeah, it's very watered f- down. Um, so yeah, that, that's what I'm In
1: yeah. terms of seeing it as an identity, as a symbol, as something to unite around, yeah, Novellu Harari wrote some great books on this. The idea that concepts and ideas are, are, the, are the human's greatest invention. In that sense, it, it can unite two people on the other side of the planet from each other just around this shared idea. Uh, so it's it's a it's a case of how do you replace hundreds of years of Christianity with something more effective, and and how do you do it quick enough? to stop the impending, uh, spread and dominance of Islam. If you sort of look, if you take the most cynical and more alarmist, uh, interpretation of trends.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, um, there must be other better and healthier alternatives. Um, I mean, this isn't practical, unfortunately for everybody, but two alternatives, um, even though I practice a religion, but it's a very, very tiny minority religion. Um, and uh, what is much more important in terms of unifying me with large groups of people are two kind of quasi-religions that I follow that are both very, um, both lack any, any sort of sense of the supernatural, um, but both have this kind of community of devotees, and one being Star Trek, <laughs> um and the other one is Argentine tango. Oh, can I go for the tango um,
2: because I'm not really into yes, Star Trek. Yes,
0: please. Do. Yes, please do. Um <laughs> in fact, uh Helen prefers that I never mention Star Trek. So do I do I need to,
2: you know, like with Islam, do I need to take like a, an oath or something to be a member?
0: Uh no, although there is a kind of um there there is rather a steep learning curve at the beginning. And if you don't go through that, so if you just kind of turn up to dances, um, people will very quickly get impatient and will not dance with you um, if you don't initially put in the time learning. So maybe there are some parallels there. Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's kind of everywhere. I'm sure this is true of many other hobbies too, that everywhere in the world you go, Everywhere in the world that I go, I seek out. I look to see if anybody is dancing tango, and if they are dancing tango, we're instant friends.
2: Ah, but see, that comes comes back to the point that we are all trying to make about identity, mm. as because we're very social animals, we seek a connection. Whether it's right, uh, whether right. it's just
1: with one yeah, other we, person, we tend to seek tend to seek ideas and concepts that are bigger than us. And that's when it veers into the, the supernatural. We want to believe that we're something special, that there's something special and unique about us. And there's some, you know, omnipotent force controlling everything because, you know, if nothing's controlling all this, what the hell am I doing? How am I wasting my time? How, how can it be like this if somebody isn't pulling all the strings? To what end are we working for? That, that kind of thing. I think that's a very natural primordial kind of uh, primate thing to consider. It's just that we know better. Now, essentially. And that that can leave holes uh, in places that were usually filled with something that may, albeit false, could have been psychologically nourishing or useful at the time in order to connect people, build communities, things like that. So um, I I, I sort of uh, can't stand the idea of giving religion some credit for some things, but I I can't think of a better unifier. But at the same time, I can't think of, of a better divider at the same time.
2: But it's true, yeah, but absolutely. it's true because i I mean I know um quite a lot of people um, oh no, you don't who uh <laughs> okay, I know like two people Better. and <laughs> so I know people who um they're also of a Muslim background, and they've they don't really believe, but they still want to cling on to something from the religion because otherwise. What will there be? And I think they're just scared of sort of going the whole way and say, "Well, I don't believe in that," because then they think, "Oh, um, I, for example, don't eat pork. Um, that's my Muslim identity. I can cling on to that because if I if I start doing that, then what else will I do? How else will I uh, be far removed from my heritage?" Um, and they're also going through maybe some things that are personal to them. And they're not sure how to fill that gap, mm. and they've and they've tried flirting with the idea of um, going on pilgrimage or praying to see if that will help. And 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 it's it's a little bit sad, really, because you they, they want something to fix what they think is lacking in them. Have you and, ever done Hajj? You know, um, no. Would you, would you ever no, consider I it? Haven't. No, no, <laughs> I wouldn't. No, I mean my hadj, well, my Hajj was to um, like Hagen in New York, right? Okay, you know, that was my mothership, <laughs> right.
1: really. I think of anything uh, more so I Jewish.
2: I am a Hajjah Iram Ramza. <laughs> well, so, well, um, what's interesting
1: a little yeah. bit about like, the problems we have with trying to get a separation of church and state as well. I mean, a lot of people will make the argument that our version of secularism as a sort of um, been derived or uh, come out of a, a sort of very christian protestant concept anyway so it's already tainted with that that kind of ideology and what i mean by that is somebody will say well if the the state isn't supposed to interfere in you know religious practice and religious beliefs why is the concept of christian marriage the lawful one for instance if a man wants you know, a polygamous relationship, several wives or whatever. Uh, the state will say, "Well, no, because it's one woman, one man," which is a very odd one man man now as it is, it, but that's a very Christian concept of marriage. This, the, the you know the two people. So you have to try and make an argument that's not based on religion as, as to justify that status quo. And we have uh, that in-
2: well, oh, I did I did see um, a piece. I think was it on? It was either on Quillette or Ario.com. And it was precisely about monogamy, um, and why it's more beneficial from an evolutionary point of view yeah. than say political. Sh- mean,
0: should... That sounds like Quillette, but let me um just check because if it is massive, laws aren't typically Darwinian,
1: I... are they? They should be based around individual liberty. So that, I mean there's no uh there's no evolutionary advantage in getting a face tattoo as far as i can see but that's a, that's a protected mm-hmm. right under the law uh so yeah i mean i just can't think of i mean i prefer monogamy no, it's right. my favorite word but
0: oh um yes so, uh, sorry ah uh, this was when i was um um flying between india and here um on the on the 10th of october will declining monogamy lead to an increase in violence that's one of ours at yeah, so yeah. a lot,
1: yeah. magazine. So marriage and starting a family with the uh, decreased likelihood of you being uh, responsible for violent crime or being involved in violent crime, I think. Um, So now I don't know whether that's more related to socioeconomic aspects uh, in terms of, you know, to start a family and get married is not an option available to everyone regardless of their intentions. Uh, So I don't know how that correlates, but.
0: Is it also, is it also age related because isn't the, The vast majority of uh, violence is committed by young men. Um, Yeah. And if you're getting married slightly older, you're just past that really wild phase.
1: I mean, there there may be some perfectly good social reasons why the one man, one woman aspect works really well. But in terms of what the law should prohibit someone from doing, it seems to be based on the religious, religious hangover.
2: Yeah, I want um, nine but I wives, think is what because I'm saying, it taps saying and them... I will
1: not sleep until <laughs> our.
2: You won't sleep that's if you have nine wives, yeah. Stephen. <laughs> You'll also have nine mother-in-laws, oh, okay. by the way.
1: Yeah, now that's a that's a better yeah. argument than <laughs> the violent crime one, as far as I'm
0: concerned. Here I'm just here I'm just. <laughs> just <okay. laughs>
2: you just hate <laughs> women,
0: don't you, Stephen? <laughs> yep, it's yeah. all coming out now. How can I hate
1: women when my mother's <laughs> one? <laughs>
2: I mean, Hindus say the same thing, like, oh, we worship uh, Parvati and Lakshmi. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, you gang (laughs) rape and you you allow, not all of them, obviously, right? Before I get (laughs) Hindu fundamentalists coming after me. It's like, it's true, though. You you have Indian people who say, oh, we worship female goddesses. And yet look at the state of women in India. If you worship women. That's absolutely appalling. Mm. wait me what well, i said no, it. Well, they worship
0: <laughs> that's the thing not women goddesses
2: this podcast um, is gonna get shut no, down isn't it
0: i mean just the idea of black
1: market <laughs> beef makes my head spin so yeah there's a lot going on there
2: but i think um this point about identity and and we need to relate to someone you see that um I mean, this isn't even a religious thing necessarily, but we can be very tribal as a species. I mean, if you look on Twitter... Oh, don't do that. um, People can't have... I know, but, you know, sometimes it's just unavoidable. And you see people now firmly set into tribes where um, they won't talk to somebody who's spoken with X or um, that person one sat next to somebody they dislike because they're beyond the pale and you just know which groups of people they're going to be and which groups of people they're absolutely going to hate and and I think the other the other problem with that is that no one can have a sensible chat and a debate it it has to be there has to be controversy in there somewhere Um, if somebody says one thing that's phrased incorrectly or what that say I mean look at what Sajid Javid tweeted over the weekend Mm. Um, in relation did, to what did he tweet so basically um I don't know if you've been following the news in the UK but um I think was it 20 men were convicted of um of, oh uh, yes of the yes. Rotherham yeah the grooming gang the so I think yeah. they were based in Huddersfield actually and um they got uh 200 years in total in
1: in
0: jail and that was the
1: one of them skipped to Pakistan as well, hasn't he? he packed his bags. was on bail waiting verdict. Can you
0: give a quick summary of the Huddersfield um, case? Because um, my experience is that a lot of people outside of the UK haven't heard of it. And also my experience is that most people, probably most people who listen to this podcast are on Twitter, but mm. most humans I know are not on Twitter.
1: Okay, so the UK, we've got a huge problem with what's been dubbed uh, grooming gangs or Asian grooming gangs, seems to be the catch all term. And uh, to the UK, Asians used to mean specifically um, sort of uh, South Asian. So we're talking people of Pakistan extraction, uh, Bangladesh, things like that. I think more. You're more commonly used in the States to denote a person from China. It's never used like that in the UK. So we're, we're saying Asian as this catch-all term for these perpetrators, whereas the reality is they're overwhelmingly Pakistani Muslims. And these cases span the whole length of the country, north to south, in quite affluent areas as well as, you know, very kind of working-class, run-down areas as well. And it tends to be a group, a large group of Muslim Pakistani men who prey on young white girls, usually underage. Um, often, these girls have, you know, certain vulnerabilities or concerns that make them susceptible to this kind of thing. And the are the 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 raped multiple times, the passed around like an item. Uh, they they're threatened with their life. They have their families threatened if they make noises about going to the police. And this has been going on for the longest time. And a government report actually found out a while back that one of the key reasons that this didn't come to light was that police officers and and certain members of uh, the uh, officials and and social workers didn't report it or didn't want to report on it, even though they knew it was happening because he was absolutely terrified of being called racist. So it's one of these things that are sort of overt leaning on PC culture. Can you just summarize the scale uh, of this? Because I know
0: Huddersfield wasn't the only example of this wasn't there also in one outside oxford yes yeah, so there was one um, around the oxford area uh, that was a couple of years
2: ago there was one in rochdale, rochdale. there was one in rotherham there was one as it up in newcastle as well um i think there's one in bristol as
0: well um and this so, has involved yeah. hun- hundreds of girls right it, a thousand. thousands. Thousands. thousands thousands i mean
2: the true the true number is unknown uh, and um so the latest case was in Huddersfield and um, uh, in that uh, the group of men, about 20 of them, were found guilty um, of more than 120 offences against 15 girls. Um, and some of them were as young as 11. Um, and this was the case that uh, Tommy Robinson uh, was trying to quote unquote report outside um, Because in the UK, we have very strict laws when it comes to reporting um, trials, because um, if you report something, it could affect um, the jury um, and the verdict and it could cause the trial to collapse. And that's happened before. So...
1: Yes, reporting's postponed. It's yeah. not denied. It's just postponed yeah. until the verdict so that you don't influence the jurors and you give everyone a fair trial. Because if these defendants can somehow make the claim that their right to a fair trial has been impeded, the entire Case can collapse. That means bringing in victims to testify again. Some of them decide they don't want to. Hundreds of thousands of pounds to the taxpayer gives the defendant another run at you know defending themselves. And it's just it's a really messy, unfortunate situation if someone's found guilty of prejudice in right. a, a case yep. in the UK.
2: Mm-hmm. After the, the the guilty verdict and the sentencing, uh, our Home Secretary Sajid Javid, he's of a Pakistani background, uh Muslim background, but he's not um, he's not practicing and he tweeted, these sick Asian paedophiles are finally facing justice. I want to commend the bravery of the victims. For too long they were ignored, not on my watch. There will be no no no-go areas. And that uh, caused a lot of outrage um, because people were saying, well, why did you have to single out Asians? Because um, a crime is a crime regardless of who commits it. Um, And that is true. Um, And fine, even if you don't agree with the way he phrased it. um, There are people who said, oh, there was some sort of racial element to this crime, especially if they're targeting white girls. So if that's the case, and if there is a a racist mindset um, with this crime, then why can Sajid Javid not call them asian paedophiles i mean i don't think they're paedophiles yeah. if they're sort of this of post pubescent that's a slightly different point but i don't think that's that important but the other the other point is i think what he was trying to say in that tweet was that look i'm from pakistani background i'm asian i'm not afraid to call out these asian men for mm-hmm. what they did um and now that i'm home secretary i'm not gonna let this type of crime go unpunished and i think the no uh, go area was a reference to um, you know um, issues or cases that are perceived to be too sensitive because of the nature of them uh, that was my understanding but I, the way he phrased it yeah, maybe so, um, it got lost in that and also because nobody likes to um, have a sensible debate on Twitter uh, yeah, yeah no, well, I mean Twitter is people, people, the entertainment people,
0: medium people are there it's like in that famous um, John Cleese sketch You know, it's a little room you go into if you're looking for an argument. You've come there to to have a um, fight. So you want your fight to happen. (laughs) And if if there doesn't seem to be anything to fight about, you've got to make something. But I remember
2: when Twitter used to be so fun and we used to just have a laugh on there. And now, you know, if you laugh, you know, maybe you've just offended somebody. I don't know
1: twitter Almost everyone starts <laughs> so everyone starts at the very end of their patience with a with an uncharitable volley <laughs> to begin with it seems but going back to the comments on these grooming gangs we, we this is this is where we are with it we it's such a widespread prob- problem going on for years thousands of girls lives ruined uh, suffered the most horrendous crimes and we we're arguing over the terminology And people who are speaking honestly about it are being shot down in flames for using the wrong word in the wrong way when we should be talking about the problem. I mean, we can just talk about Sarah Champion, who is an MP for for Labour, until she was fired, and she was fired for giving an interview in the Sun newspaper where she said, "There's a problem in Britain with Asian gangs raping young white girls." Can I just point out, actually, a, um, she's still an MP. Fact. She was and just um, was...
2: she was she resigned from being the Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equality, so that's what she had to. Yeah, I
0: thought
2: that, she was fired. Yeah, I thought um, Corbyn gave her the she, which I'm but She's pushed. still an MP, though. Uh, she's just no longer a front bench minister. Because of that. Right.
1: Okay. So here we have a prominent MP, member of the opposition, who should really be leveraging this event to say, look, this wouldn't have happened on our watch. Hold on. Much of it probably did uh, under a Labour government. But they could be saying, look, we, we want to ta- tackle this sensibly. We want to name the problem. However, when one of their own talks about the problem in a way that needs to be talked about, uh, they find themselves in trouble. So, I mean maybe we couldn't have prevented it. Obviously, certain failings would suggest we could, but at least we should be able to have a, a sensible conversation about right. it. And uh, if, if if an Asian politician of Pakistan descent himself can't use that kind of language to say he's he understands the problem and he he's going to do his best to make sure it doesn't get uh, to this point again, uh, if he can't do that without getting... Rounded on with, with condemnation. But you from know the what the other problem right? I just think is, though. We're screws, um, sorry,
2: just one quick point. Um, people were saying that his language was a dog whistle to the far right and the racist. I hate this because because the thing is, I, I don't this. think Sajid Javid is interested in dog whistling to anybody.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing: now there's so little overt public. Bigotry from you know public pro- people with high profiles. Now that people have to invent it with this term dog whistle. It's this mind reading technique. And how about, can you predict well, it's how you people really will respond? But the, the other
2: issue is and that your- the far right actually don't like Sajid Javid or say Sadiq Khan because they see them as Muslims first, and that's it. That's their problem. And secondly, secondly, yes. the reason why you have you know say people like Tommy Robinson and a lot of his followers is because. They're, they're seen to be very um, candid about these issues um, and they can then play the martyr and say well no one else is saying this no one else is talking about it uh, here you have the home secretary just blatantly comes out with it so that he can take that narrative away from them and it takes the power away from them right. and yet you know I mean maybe he could have phrased it better I don't know but then I don't know that i see a lot of that around these days now people policing each other over language there's a debate that's taking place in a couple of days or weeks and it's to do with um i don't know Stephen. if you can remember it it's um
1: is it, is it the one about has a sort of yeah, ethnic diversity like that. weakened the west like <laughs> I, that? I mean is it that was a one? bit
2: of is a bizarre title right. but i thought <laughs> it is and I, and I think it's supposed That's to be a very provocative, provocative title because then it makes people think oh i want to actually go to this yeah. that was my fault that was my thought i was like oh i want to go to this now
0: yeah I, I'm david aranovich liking, is on it david, i think
2: trevor phillips David Duranovich on it, and on it well. i usually like listening to those two speak so um that title made me sit up and think oh okay um and everyone was rounding up on it like oh why did you call it this yeah, why but- not this and you think it, it, it was a question. It was a debate starting point. It wasn't saying, hey, guys, guess what? You know, all these darkies, right? They've ruined the West, right? You fucked it up for all of us. The end.
1: But there's obviously going to be somebody there who's going to argue the, the net benefit of immigration and our cultural diversity as a strength, surely. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be a couple you of will. people saying get them out. And it, to be fair, that is a valuable... Well, yeah, no, but surely you can talk about multiculturalism and the idea of multicultures and ideas and how it is re- perfectly reasonable not to consider all cultures equal in that way. And you can talk about ideas. And, and then you, there's no contradiction with that and the the human rights of the individual, how they should be protected. And this shouldn't be dependent on skin color or ethnicity or anything else. But I think you can talk about the shift in cultural identity that that's you know, happening due to immigration. I don't understand why that's such a no-go area, and I, I bang on about this all the time. But whenever you poll people across Europe, and they're asked about the top two concerns, they'll answer it's either immigration or terrorism, or sometimes they'll say terrorism then immigration, and uh, they're always the top two things we really struggle to have a sensible conversation about. Or if you're shown to be over, too, you know, too interested in one or the other, you're you're maligned as a bigot, and uh, that doesn't go well for people. I think it, the, title, vote, well, the title. Well, the
0: title was good because. Because it was, because it's so ambiguous, and there, well, and there are obviously things, uh, problematic things within. The very
1: Can space. I just find that title? Because I'm really concerned about misrepresenting it. probably made it sound, it. It made it sound was. a lot worse than it was. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Sure,
0: let's, um, let's check. I think I also uh, tweeted about it. Um, so I'm sure I'm one of the people on Twitter okay, who are we complaining about having <laughs> um,
1: I've got it okay here it is is rising ethnic diversity right. so a threat what I feel is West? problematic
0: there is uh, several things first of all um when are they really are are they really concerned about ethnic diversity in the sense of um genetic diversity are they really concerned about actual race here um or is the concern primarily about culture and then i think that there is this tendency to lump all kinds of cultural diversity together um and when in fact really most types of cultural diversity um i i find wholly positive and the problem is Some specific ideas, um, almost all of which have come from religious conservatism of one one brand or another, Um, and it is those ideas within the culture that I dislike. So, um, yeah, and I think
1: I think this concern would be. Placated with a, a fuller understanding of the word ethnic, people see ethnic and, and see it as a synonym for race, and it's not. So if they'd, have, if they'd have started with "is rising racial diversity a threat to the rest," I'd think that was some sort of alt-right neo-Nazi right, rally. Right. But ethnicity can, you know, primarily deals with culture. It can be anything from food to dress uh, to ideas uh, and things like that. So I think I think that's a valid question to ask. It's just that that word ethnic is so loaded, right? Uh, but in a I sense think that, that it sets people. The
0: diversity is is. Really, not a problem until you get the. Um, except in the case of reactionary religious views. So, for example, Not
1: necessarily because England has um, England has a problem with multiculturalism. So, diversity, racial diversity, is not an issue. It's just that we're having multiple communities living parallel lives and not interacting with oh yeah, no. Cohesion, not interacting is certainly you see a problem. With these, you know, um, but or, the problem you know, is
0: not the kind of just the sort of. Um, rich variety of culture the problem is a the ghettoization so in fact that's not multicultural that's kind of parallel yeah. cultures living completely separate existences yes it's multicultural well, it's but mul- it's not multicultural I mean, maybe that- that's too pedantic a distinction but you see what i mean um and i think I mean, that. how also- did you find it in india then so in, India, so in India,
2: yeah, because um, you in, were in, were you in Bombay?
0: I was in Bombay mostly. Yes, um, okay. in India, there's a really um, religion is so omnipresent. Yeah, um, I can imagine. I mean, you can uh, you can tell people's religion quite often from the way they're dressed. Um, mm. You know that I mean, not, obviously not in all cases, but many uh, Hindus, for example, are wearing caste markings. Uh, on their face, what's and a
2: caste marking? As it's in like, it's um, like
0: this kind of um, usually red, like tealac or or white sort of chalk uh, markings. Oh,
2: okay. Some I didn't people, realize that was a cast thing. I thought it was just um, that they go to the temple and get that done.
0: Oh, you you do get you can get that done in the temple as well. Yes, actually, when I was in uh, Tamil Nadu and I went into the temple, they smeared me all over with this stuff. And I came out and I had stripes everywhere in my face um, (laughs) and red dots and things. Um, But I think that – so I think some of those are markings of caste and some of them are just markings of um, being Hindu. Um, So I think they're called caste – I'm going to probably get this wrong because I'm not an expert on Hinduism. But I think they're caste markings because only caste Hindus are supposed to – Right. use them, not that they're from a specific caste um, okay. And uh, but you see a lot of people with with these marks um, and that's a Hindu thing this is different from the bindi which is just cultural um, yeah, the yeah. bindi like the little spot in the middle of your uh, eyes which is just kind of cultural and something you will put on if you're wearing a sari, uh, it doesn't yeah. matter what religion you are so you see many people with the caste markings you see, many people, um, many Muslims in Muslim dress. The men have these quite natty uh, little white outfits with a sort of pedal pusher trousers, and the crocheted hats. Um, yeah, the hats and, are given away. Yeah. Um, a lot of women in hijab. Many, many women in burqa. Um, I saw a lot of face veils uh, in Bombay. Um, oh wow! And I don't know if that's. A majority of the community, or or anything like that, I have no idea what the figures and stats are, because there are many, many very secularized and liberal Muslims uh, also in India. Um, and I dated a, uh, I also briefly dated a Muslim guy who was from a totally uh, liberal family. Um, I think, and that seemed to be quite common. Um. And then also, of course, Sikhs are in their turbans, etc. But just religious symbolism is also everywhere. So just taking the Zoroastrian community, um, for example, we live in our own little, co- many of the um, Parsis live in their own colonies, um, the Parsi box, Parsi colonies, yeah. uh, which par- only Parsis can live there. And there are similar colonies also for Hindus, Sikhs, Christians, Muslims, um, there are all these little tiny ghettos. I mean tiny, this is, you know, uh um a square of kind of twenty houses, not a whole area of town, but a little sort of gated tiny little gated um um community. They're called outside Bombay they're often called societies, um right. which just okay. means as kind of like a housing estate, but it's often based on religious affiliation. And then and how also, does and how do you feel about that though? I mean, do you think that's a good thing? Does it work for the city? Does it have its ups and downs? Um the the ones in the Parsi community are of course really, really charming. Um, because the Parsi's being quite a sort of affluent community. Mm-hmm. Um they've created these lovely little oases of quiet and greenery in the very chaotic city. Um but I think it's not it's probably not ideal. Um, and then also, of course, everybody's doors. So even if you're in a mixed building, um, you can tell from people's doors what religion they follow because you can see how they've decorated the door. Uh, you can tell from people's names very often. You can tell from their first names, their surnames. Uh, in the case of Parsis, you can also see we're a very small group and we have very typical phenotype um, features so you yeah, can, you can. Yeah. You you can you can tell you can uh Parsi Dar is pretty reliable. Um hmm. but you know, you can tell from people's names, their dress, their um the way their houses and doors are decorated. So, you know, Hindu houses have swastikas um across the door frame. Hindu swastikas, obviously not Nazi swastikas. <laughs> Yeah, and, I kind of got that. <laughs> yeah, just for anybody who's listening, um, and um, uh, Muslim houses have a, a kind of Arabic script and things like that, um, and there is a temple, um, mostly mostly Hindu temples. Probably, I would say where I lived, there was there were. Um, four or five um little shrines mm. um a little kind of alcove thing with a an idol inside and bells uh where you would have to take off your shoes to enter um and uh you could you could smell the sandalwood incense and th- incense and things about about four or five every block i mean yeah. really a huge mm. huge number
2: I mean so that it's would be quite strange living in a country like that where you can immediately tell what kind of um, family is living in a house just by looking at the door. Uh, yes,
0: yes, absolutely. It, it, yeah, um, and it's led to a lot of. In the past, there have been huge. Um, there, you know, there have been many episodes of terrible violence um, in India's past, and in the not not very. Um, long ago past, also the fairly recent past. And it's very easy to have a pogrom against a particular group because they all live together. And even if they don't, you can tell from the surnames and everybody has their names on their doors in in India. You can tell from the names and also the decoration of the door, you know which ones are Hindus and which are Muslims and which are Sikhs. And it's very... I think it's also I I have no idea how many people are devout and in what sense they are devout so a lot of hindus also describe themselves as hindu atheists um so again, they again that's that not...
2: <laughs> yeah again that's like a, a it's 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 about like you were saying before about the whole identity thing and right. trying to fit into a category because if you just say you're an atheist um it's like you're saying, I want nothing to do with the religious heritage, whereas if you say I'm a Hindu atheist, you're saying that part of my heritage is still very important to me,
0: right. They also argue that nowhere in Hinduism is there a s- sort of scriptural <clears throat> um commandment that you have to believe in a in um in Gods. Uh, uh, well so that's kind i mean of that's, their like, justification. that's like
2: people, that's like when when you get hindus here who claim that um there's no basic religious basis for the caste system that the caste the word caste um is actually a british word and that's been imposed on the hindus by the british and it's got nothing to do with hinduism it's, well, it's I think, nonsense it um, isn't
0: yeah, yes absolutely i mean you can read it, it about it in the manusmriti which i'm almost certainly pronouncing wrongly so i'll just um I just said that as quickly as possible so people wouldn't notice. But also, <laughs> um, I think Razib Khan um, either did this himself or he shared <laughs> the link. Um, I think that that has been uh, disproven by DNA studies. Um, mm. So there, there's been genetic drift between caste groups in India, which implies that these groups have not intermarried for millennia wow Um, i mean that's that's really unhealthy as well um um, absolutely i mean uh of course um caste discrimination on the basis of caste is illegal um but there and i think there is still a lot of it around especially among the hindu right who are enjoying a certain ascendancy at the moment because the government um seems to be at least quite sympathetic to their aims and their movement. And yeah, yeah. some figures in the Indian government, in the BJP, um especially um Yogi Adityanath uh, up in Uttar Pradesh um are pretty much out and out religious extremists. So I think particularly in North India, uh there's there's still quite a quite a large amount of um discrimination going on. And friends of mine have told me, a friend who is, uh, I think she just turned 30, and she uh, told me that growing up in um, in Bangalore, uh, it was considered that her... Um, the The Brahmins who lived next door didn't want her shadow to fall upon their balcony because her shadow would pollute, pollute their home. Oh, um, for God's sake. And someone else told me, and he's also in his 20s, that growing up he was um, not allowed to um, eat and drink with the other primary school kids on their break because he's a Dalit. Oh, for goodness sake. I wanted to ask, actually, and I just want to preface this question um, carefully, um, not just because I don't want to be accused of bigotry, but also because this just is true. That um, I don't want to make it. I don't want to make it sound like um, pedophilia or abusing young girls as a sort of um, <laughs> <laughs> favorite hobby of mine. Is is you know some. <laughs> um is something specific to islam because for example in india i think there are there are millions of um girls under the age of 12 who are married and, but who are married child brides and almost all of them are hindu um and also just look at the catholic church and their record mm. on this so i just want to kind of bring up those examples because it this is not sp- specific um, to Islam but why are there um, you know um, why are there these Pakistani grooming gangs are they connected the the different grooming gangs is this one group of people and why is it um, right. why are British um, Pakistan okay. you know why are so many of them um, British Pakistanis Okay, so I think there's several reasons
2: for this. Um, I think if you're going to be very simplistic, it's because there are Muslims and all Muslims are like pedos and that, yeah. Yeah, mm. basically, fact. Um, yep, uh, fact.
0: <laughs> um, so so the reason is because <laughs> People I People are going to have a field day with that soundbite. I
2: know. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, she anyway, said it. Oh, you know, fuck it, I don't care. Right, I think... Um, there are several reasons. Um, one of the reasons is because of the nighttime economy. So um, there are a lot of Pakistani men who, say, work as taxi drivers or in takeaways. And um, it, being in those jobs, you get easy access to people and information. Mm. Um, and this is a to do with grooming. But I, when I've had to speak to taxi drivers about something they always seem to know what's going on because they're there all the time and they observe things. So if you want, you want information about anything.
0: And they know people's addresses also.
2: That's what I'm saying. That because they have access to information, it makes mm. them ideal. I mean, that doesn't mean they're all going to, to be in these gangs, but I think if you're, say, working in a takeaway and you have regular customers, you get to... Um, make relations with um, certain people. And the same with taxi drivers as well. You you have access, you get to drive around the town and cities. And some of these gangs are connected. Um, there's loads of people. Yeah.
1: yeah, it increases your opportunity, doesn't it? It is, uh, because... Well, I'm not, not, not sure it's the underlying cause. Um,
2: um, I mean, they do have really disgusting mindsets towards females
1: in general. Uh, White be- females specifically, there's always a racial element to these cases that seems to come up time and time again so i mean it's interesting that it is it is a blend of sort of you can look back in islamic culture and see that mohammed had child brides and i'm I'm sure that plays um...
2: well one of them was a child bride and because of that because of that example, whether whether it's a fact that he did or not, because people still try and dispute the age of Aisha. Some yeah, say she was now. nine, now, now she was 18. Now it's become very
1: problematic. I think they, they yes. say sex it's- uh, was consummate at the age of nine, wasn't it? Married at six tends to be the, the more... Um, Objective reading of the text, but I'm I'm hoping for the, a debate on that because uh, it's not my issue. But that that tends to inform the age of consent in a lot of Islamic cultures, and this it is-
2: does. And and also, um, you know, like in scripts, in, in Islamic scripts, um, you know, the uh, a lot of people will interpret those texts. Uh, to say that um, a father, a a girl's legal guardian can marry her off when he wishes. It doesn't matter whether she says yes or no. Um, Obviously, after she's reached the age of puberty, then she has the right to say no. But before that, he can do whatever he wants with her, even if that means marrying her off. So because of the Prophet Muhammad's example, because he married a child, I think this is why There's a prevalence of child marriage in Muslim countries. If you look at Yemen, you have girls as young as nine being married off there. Uh, I don't think there's an age of consent in Yemen. Uh, Consent's probably not
1: even a concept.
2: (laughs) No, it's not. It's not. And in in a lot of these places, consent really doesn't... I mean, consent is a luxury. Hmm. Consent is a privilege. Over there, um, your father is your guardian. You'll do as he says. Um, And that's why in a lot of these countries you do have young girls being married off. Uh, I mean, in, in Pakistan, the age of consent is, I think the legal age for marriage is 16. And I think they were trying to raise it to 18 for girls. And the Council of Islamic Ideology just went absolutely ballistic saying, well, this is, you're going against Islam. So you cannot divorce a religion from it. Yeah. I mean, you can't say it's completely down to it, but you can't you can't discount that.
1: I um, just want to speak to a few things I only said at the beginning because she made the the, the point the, the important point that it's not an exclusively Islamic problem. So there's a few distinctions we we need to make really. So the number one perpetrators in child sex crimes in the UK are white,
2: because most British men in men, this country
1: are white, without a doubt, because that's a white and British, that's what you would expect. You'd expect that crime to be committed mostly by the majority of the population, uh, you know, in terms of demographics.
0: You'd expect all crimes to be mostly committed by the majority, Correct. Right.
1: So in the in the grooming gang instance, this is a very specific type of crime. This is a large numbers of men often related to each other. We're talking cousins, brothers, as well as close friends, passing around young white girls, often underage. Now this is, I think some, over 90% uh, of these cases, the, the numerous cases that are now propping up, which span several years, over thousands of victims, uh, majoritively uh, Pakistani men uh, of a Muslim extraction. So it's a it's a very specific problem where a minority is a league leader in a very serious and specific type of crime. So there's got to be some cultural factors there. And obviously people people do the best to divorce culture from religion, but most cultures tend to be informed by religion, yeah. uh, especially Islamic ones. So I think there's, 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 a, there's no short amount of uh, relevance to the way women are considered under Islamic, uh, under a very conservative, strict Islamic interpretation, I have to say. So there's this idea that white girls, white non Muslim girls specifically, are less than human and should be treated like chattel and property uh, and playthings to do what they want with. I I think that is informed by attitudes towards women in general, sure. But I think a lot of the attitudes towards women are informed uh, by conservative interpretations. I think it's also to do with
2: their background because they've not been taught to really respect women um and you can tell they wouldn't respect their own women um, at all because i remember reading about some of these men um uh and that, and that one of them in particular who was part of one gang he was uh const- he was for for many many years uh raping uh, a family member um and he was abusing his own wife like he was very violent towards her so he, they, they definitely have a very, very disgusting uh, attitude towards females generally. But I think with, with, with I think it's because yeah. you know the option that oh, because they're not Asian, you can pass them around more freely um, because they can go out late at night. No one's going to really say anything to them as well. They're more um, up to maybe drink as well or smoke, and that's not seen as. Um, disrespectful because you don't you know if, if if asian girls are caught drinking or smoking mm, that's mm. you know that's still a taboo really um whereas with white girls it's like oh you know they'll do anything even if they are underage and vulnerable um and the vulnerability is it's key. also
1: pressure within some of these communities as well to have an arranged marriage to a, a nice asian muslim girl beforehand and to, to be bringing home a white girl mm. in just a consensual everyday relationship can fracture families. In a lot, I mean, this is the problem of multiculturalism again. A lot of these multicultures are unicultures, unfortunately. Uh, So, I mean, there there were documentaries made a while back about this of of young Asian men cruising for white girls because that was their opportunity for sex. That's where they went out.
2: That's a, Uh, yeah, that's a very, very good point. Um, I mean, I, you know, growing up uh, around uh, other Pakistani girls and boys you're constantly taught that you're not really supposed to talk to the opposite Hmm. sex um okay fine talk to them in school when you're in class to learn after that you do not socialize with them keep away from boys keep away from girls um uh, and you can't make you can't have friends with them because there's no such thing as friendship between a boy and girl it's always something uh dirty um and wrong there and i think that's um you 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 have that upbringing where there's very this segregation between boys and girls from a very young age and they're just not taught how to interact with one another um and the only t- opportunity to do that in a um acceptable way is when they get married um and you know they've probably had very little education around relationships and sex as well and and then they get married and suddenly they have to interact with the opposite sex and they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. Um, I mean, fair enough if you think it's part of the religion and culture to not have sex before marriage. That's completely your choice, but you still have to teach about healthy relationships and how to interact with one one another in a healthy way. And And you don't really get that.
1: I think, I think this is a good point. I think it's one of these issues that is overlooked or not given enough investigation. And we can apply this to the Catholic church as well. I'm utterly convinced that if you.
0: Mm. And to to Indian men in general, actually, you know, many of whom have, many of whom have arranged uh, marriages, you know, there's no healthy outlet for sexuality. And when that, when those healthy outlets are closed off, then, you get much more um, of this kind of toxic and uh, yeah, pathological behaviour. When, when behaviors. normal
1: and natural routes to relationships and sex are cut off. Uh, from you, under the guise of God, these abnormal attitudes are going to produce some very abnormal behaviour. Mm. You, know, you just look at the Catholic Church: no sex before marriage, masturbation's a sin, homosexuality is a sin, celibacy is to be the standard. Just all these these things. There's no surprise to me that they're going to produce some incredibly heinous and abnormal sexual behaviour. Um, and I think you can apply that towards attitudes towards women and, and premarital sex in, in Islamic cultures as well. And the, the idea that um, I mean, imagine that. You're you a young person who's a minority in the, in the UK, and you 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 basically just want everything a, a young heterosexual boy wants, but you're told that the majority of the population is off limits to you, and you can only marry and, and fraternize within your own community at a specific time that's predetermined by your your the elders in your family. I mean, it's it's going to it's going to lead to some dodgy behaviour. Yeah, I,
2: I remember when I was in primary school, um, and I was about. I think five or six years old. um, And I was in the playground and I was with some classmates and they were boys and we were playing Power Rangers. That's that's a TV show that used to come on in the UK, by the way. Haram. Mega. Um, So I was just playing. And (laughs) this girl came up to me and she um, she was sort of a family friend. We knew her family. And she was about... I think, five years older than me. And she just, she came up to me, she was "Oh, oh, um, don't play with them because they're boys. And I was like, "Um, what? Because my mum had actually never said to me, you can't talk to boys or play with them. That's probably why I'm a Medusa now. So, you know, it's all her fault. (laughs) And so she went. And then as soon as she went, I would just start playing again and then she just came back to me several times saying, "Oh, don't don't play there. Come over here." And I thought to myself, "I'm 5 years old. We're all the same age. What the hell do you think we're going to do? We're in the playground." Um and and and, and that's I mean that just that reveals a type of mindset that she was brought up with that you can't have healthy a healthy friendship with somebody of the opposite sex regardless of your age um it's there's always something sinister behind it it yeah. makes
0: it very hard to empathize you know to to develop normal kind yes. of empathy um with people of the opposite sex and also to understand how to behave in a uh in a sort of healthy fashion and i feel this about a lot of indian men i have to say i'm going to just accept except all of my um, male Indian friends who are really fantastic. Um, But, you know, many of them, some are predatory and others are just clueless. They're just completely are. I I kind of feel the
2: same way about Um, some Pakistani guys have come across, like, I think in certain circumstances they could come across as really creepy when in fact, it's as you said, they're clueless and they've no idea how to talk to someone of the opposite sex because no one has sat down and said look this is how it goes this is how you talk to people you know this is what a healthy relationship looks like blah blah blah
1: this is one of the concerns people have with immigration this is this is a, a very uh, tricky experiment to be playing in, in terms of uh, uh, inviting people in whose norms around sexuality and female equality are, are somewhat antiquated so I, th- I kind of have sympathy towards that argument when people bring up immigration Uh, Obviously, these things tend to be um, the exception rather than the rule anyway.
0: Mm, mm. I want to get onto another couple of topics (laughs) um, that um, related to secularism. So one thing is, I recently saw that, I saw, I think it was Iceland who recently banned um, infant circumcision, uh, male circumcision. I have been wondering, actually, despite the 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 people in the U.S. who claim that there are some health benefits to circumcision, which I think is extremely, uh, I I find that argument extremely unconvincing on a medical and scientific uh, from a medical and scientific point of view, and I also think that that probably the U.S. circumcision stuff comes from or was initiated by people with Christian motivations, and now it's a kind of hangover of a sort of religious a religious attitudes. And... Yeah.
1: Um, I, I derailed.
0: Yeah, I wondered if well, you wanted to say something about... I think that's about, why they started um, it initially. It issue. was to
2: make... I think, wasn't <laughs> it to stop them from masturbating?
1: Um,
0: I, I know that's why Kellogg's... I don't stop
1: anybody, unfortunately. Yes.
0: No, I know, but that Which, was... Oh, it's definitely what? worked because... No American men, uh, I, I, no American men masturbate, <laughs> do they? I mean, problem solved. It has Just lop totally it off. Um, the,
2: uh, but but that's, <laughs> why, <laughs> that's,
0: that's why the, uh, the
2: uh, inventor of cornflakes um, made cornflakes. You know, Kellogg's. Yeah, because he Kellogg, thought that yes. would you know reduce people's sex drives. I mean, what a weirdo. Um, but um, I mean, regardless of whether there is health benefits or not, if there were, it'd be compulsory. And also. Um, why are you doing it to your child? I mean, if you if you get rid of a certain part of your body, then obviously there's never going to be any likelihood that that part will get infected because it's not there. Um, so it's like if you chop your arm off, you know, your arm's not going to get infected or anything because there's no arm there. Um,
1: yeah, but if, I mean, if you
2: as an adult want to get it done... Um, then fine, go ahead and do yeah, it. Why but... I, um,
1: I derailed an entire panel by bringing this topic up on Saturday. I men- I made a throwaway comment about male <laughs> circum infant circumcision. I think I said something like, good luck explaining that to the aliens. And then the panel devolved into a, well, an yes, hour conversation I mean... about genitals, and people were <laughs> nice. outraged about it. And you know, I used the word mutilation to describe the process, which really annoyed Ed Hussein. He, he thought that was such a bizarre term to use for mm-hmm. you know mutilating a part of somebody's body. But it's one of them things that uh, people will push the health benefits and will say, you know, it reduces STDs. It, it's uh, it's good for this and that, and that they're all things that can be mitigated by standard hygiene. Essentially, so there's not just, an argument just wash
2: there. yourself. You know, just wash yeah. your dick
0: and you'll be fine.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> wash it up.
0: Well, you know, I and in India actually the Bora community uh who are the only Muslims in India who practice uh female yeah, genital yeah. mutilation. See, um it's a form where they yeah, they remove the um the hood of the clitoris and they also make the same arguments. Um, about infection and cleanliness well, I'm at and a conference in Birmingham,
1: which is in the West Midlands of the UK, on Saturday, which is a secular medical forum, and it's a group of medical professionals, and they're going to discuss the way in which religion impacts uh, medical services in the UK. And one of the things on the bill there is circumcision, infant ritual circumcision. So I will be there with a the camera to cover the entire event, which will be online at some point. So I'll, I'll tweet that out when it comes. But th- people have this idea that... Male circumcision specifically is um, at worst benign. There's no complications that can arise from it. And that's just simply not true. We're now getting lots and lots of case studies and more and more, sorry, as more and more people are coming forward to uh, share the ill effects they've experienced, you know, lack of sensation.
2: Do you know what the numbers are for this? Because I've, I mean, maybe because I've not researched this uh, area, I've not come across it, but I always had the impression that. Um, it, it was fairly routine and there's, it, even though there can be complications, that they're quite low in number. Yeah,
1: it, it can be. So... Uh- Ostensibly and over you know, the majority of the procedures go fine. And, and most people, I would say most people probably don't have any side effects or real effects, but there are people that do. And you've got to keep in mind, this is a purely unnecessary medical procedure. Uh, there are times when a child does need to be circumcised for medical reasons, and that's perfectly fine by me. But I'm talking solely and specifically about ritual circumcision, which is just an ideological uh thing that's placed on the child without their choice or consent and it's a, it's a, it's a life altering decision to make that and one that can't be reversed and can lead to will effects and like I say it's not necessary I actually it's actually getting more steam this now because FGM gets a lot more attention and rightly so because it's it's worse in many different ways uh, oh you are gonna
2: get so many people yeah on well, that's, well that's Just... funny
1: because now there's a building level of male uh, circumcision activists one of them came up to me and handed me a handful of literature after my panel on Saturday he was so pleased that somebody had brought up the topic of male circumcision uh, because he he's an activist for it, so I'll have to check out that organisation as well. But it's just one of them.
0: Yes, they're called Intactivists, right? Activist, Intactivists, right? That's
1: brilliant. But some woman in the in the yes. audience, I didn't get a chance to respond to it, but she kind of alluded. To how sinister it was that I was interested in children's genitals, and I I just wanted to shout, (laughs) "I'm not the fucking one chopping at them." That's just (laughs) my my position on this is leave them alone. I don't want to hear about genitals at all. But you know, it's going to come up occasionally when people of your tribe start lopping off foreskins. It's just one of them. Like I said in my. A speech at the time and it was a joke good luck explaining this to the aliens but i'm pretty serious about that how do you explain this practice to somebody from a logical standpoint you know i don't think i remember
2: more- i remember on social media yeah. there
1: was a few of
2: us who were having this debate and it was just for fun there was like no seriousness and it was about the aesthetic um, yeah. side of it and of the
1: norm in outside
0: of europe
2: Yeah, it has. And there are loads of women saying, oh, I think it looks better. And there were loads of guys who were sort of very pro-circumcision who were saying, you know, yeah, who they're saying, actually, yeah, um, (laughs) a lot of women like when it's circumcised and I was like, I don't think women really like looking at dicks regardless (laughs) of whether they're circumcised or not. So I don't think that is really a strong argument that women will like it. It's
1: standard in porn, isn't it? You're not getting a job in porn unless you're circumcised. I've done a lot of research and let me tell you, um, yeah. (laughs) So uh, it is one of them things where it's, it's, it, it exists outside of religious instruction. Now it's become almost a middle class american thing Mm -hmm. that's not related to judaism uh as such or islamic culture so they're sort of battling this idea on it's become normalized to such an extent you're battling it on religious grounds and then purely societal ones
0: i think the numbers have been going down um uh, certainly in australia and maybe in the u.s as well um and in canada also um I think the numbers have been going down but I haven't looked into this so I may be talking <laughs> bullshit right now. Well, I mean my own, my own feeling very my own feeling very strongly and I can't go into detail because this is a family friendly show. <laughs> um but we talked about I, murder I, I can't and chuck boiling but...
2: water. It's
0: really, very PG. <laughs> yes but you know um but you know this is sex so we can't oh. have we're not going to have you know a triple x rating here helen will never forgive me because she already feels i talk about this topic too much um just say if you remove I do, thousands of nerve know,
1: endings yeah. at the end of an organ it's going to reduce sensation and if that's a sex organ that's unfortunate
0: yep that is absolutely my experience um what? that is my experience Can you elaborate or um,
2: just <laughs> i'm just gonna say just leave it there you know i'm gonna leave it at that
0: i'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it there. My experience is that um there is there is far there's a lot less sensation for yeah. most people yeah. um and you can tell obviously from the person's response um and i'm I'm gonna leave it there and I'm not gonna say anything <laughs> else. I think one of the problems with this is um that if you've been circumcised, it's too late, and so you yes. don't want to hear that you've lost that. something especially related to the penis so it makes people feel very very insecure yeah. um and i think that is a lot of what is driving the debate Apart
1: yeah. from create enough noise and opposition to it to prevent it happening to other people i think i think that's where it's at and that's why people right, right. people who have yeah. had um bad experiences as a result of their circumcision and do a great service by coming forward and, and talking about as difficult as that can be. And I completely understand that you, you, you kind of, yeah. you've had something that your entire yeah. life, you you've trusted your parents to deal with it for you. And if you, you've believed your entire life, it's perfectly normal and you're not missing out on anything, then all of a sudden to get that opposing view can make you feel a little bit, you know, lesser a, 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 as a person in some way. That's not, that's not yeah, what you want you, to do. You, yeah.
2: Well, you, you said create noise. I kind of had a different image in my head
1: there create <laughs> noise <laughs> I was
2: like, create noise like oh oh you
0: mean um I mean, like, you know, yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah drop an know, album
1: oh. all about circumcision <laughs> perhaps <laughs>
0: um yeah i think it's really i mean you have to be um you have to approach it with great care to not make yes. people feel lesser yes. yeah so
1: i think I think we can all agree that perhaps it would be best to place this in the hands oh that's not a good metaphor is it <laughs> to allow the decision to be made by young adults rather than yeah. the parents at, at Yes the, at absolutely birth. Yeah.
0: I think uh, you know um I mean people I'm loath to call it mutilation the problem is the lack of consent um yeah. the problem yeah. is it's just it doesn't even matter whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just an unnecessary operation that you are doing to a patient who can't consent. And that's against the Hippocratic yeah, oath. I
2: remember somebody was saying once, um, yeah, but um, you know, we cut people's, we cut our children's hair all the time. And he's like, well, yeah, but yeah. Hair, hair, can grow. hair can
1: grow. Hair can grow. That won't grow. Here's what came up twice, twice on the panel. Actually I didn't get time. The, the moderator was quite, on this panel he kind of took up a lot of time and didn't really let us answer the audience's questions but twice this came up and I was itching to respond to it this example of ear piercings for young girls you know we oh and yeah firstly if someone wants to int- introduce consent law to child ear piercing I'm fine with that whatever but the fact is ears can heal from piercings no one's growing back a fucking foreskin anytime soon so I, I, it's not like for like As some some buffoon in the audience when I mentioned that um, consent is important here he asked me well can we ask children to consent for surgical procedures you know like life-threatening alterations yeah, but and things like that He certain- was laughing at me for bringing up the idea of consent because babies can't cons- you they, they know they don't consent to other medical procedures either it's like yeah but th- then they're, they're necessary that, that's the Yeah, point. having
2: like a, you know, heart operation is not the same as having like a piece of your knob cut off. So, I don't
1: I feel um, like the problem is I feel like no matter how I approach this conversation, I'm always going to come up worse. I think I'm ahead of the curve on this discussion, unfortunately, so I'm always going to be the strange guy who's talking about kids genitals where everyone else thinks it's normal. And it, whether or not it's such a huge travesty in in human, you know, act that it deserves this much attention from me, it's just I struggle. I struggle to appreciate that other people can't see the act in such literal terms like I do. And the way that religion provides some sort of form of cover for what is essentially actual bodily harm of an infant so that, that's what I struggle But my concern my sole concern I could not give two shits about the religious convictions of the parents and what they want their child to be I, my concerns for that child and uh, this is irreversible and unnecessary and can have adverse health effects so I think people should take it a little bit more seriously than they do
2: I I have a friend who are um, ex-Muslims and they struggled with the whole circumcision thing because when they had children, they were like, I don't want to make my child go through this. But then um, when we take them to their grandparents and they're going to be changing them up and whatnot, they're going to notice, like, how do we explain that to them? And it ends up becoming such an issue between their families, even though it's your child you know, it's not really up to them what they do with that child. Um, they're the parents and they've decided, well, we don't want to circumcise our son. And yeah, it's just it's just really, um, I think it can be quite a difficult thing for some people
1: to do. There was a court case, which is, this is important from a legal perspective. There was a Muslim family, a Muslim man and a woman, they were married. Had, I'm not sure if they was married actually. They had a child together, but then they separated. And the mother obviously the more sensible one, decided that the child should get to make the choice about circumcision themselves when they hit adulthood. And the dad wanted him right with God immediately. And it went to court. They had a legal battle over whether this child should be circumcised or not. And thankfully, the court ruled in favor of the mother. So that, I mean, surely if all circumcision cases went to court, the state a rule in favor of adult consent so why is it when it becomes a legal issue the the state says actually they need to be of a certain age whereas if it doesn't go to court it's just the norm that, that doesn't make sense to me either it's the the wrong malpractice for all times i think that's isn't.
2: what needs to happen a few of these cases need to come out where something has gone horrible hard-
1: I wonder if a third party can take everyone yeah, to court. I'm really
0: surprised there hasn't been a That'd class be action suit in the European Court of Human Rights on this topic.
1: Yeah. I think
2: that's what needs to happen. Unfortunately, it's only when something really bad happens that, you know, the state will sit up and pay attention. And I think that's what needs to happen here that's something
1: stories about botched circumcisions yeah if something
2: goes really wrong and if there's enough numbers and they go to court then i think there's a possibility that it could be banned hmm. but for now i just don't think it will
1: but having said that you know female genital mutilation is appalling as it is is banned in the country and it still happens zero convictions is there zero i think maybe one conviction or oh, there was a there's somebody been charged yes, perhaps. Recently but, uh, there's
0: been some someone has been at least charged. I don't know if convicted. Right. Yeah, that's... no convictions yet. But um but the FGM is it's
2: it's because it's it's never really been part of society until um immigrants from certain countries started arriving and brought this, and that was seen as much worse. Whereas male circumcision, as we mentioned before, is largely seen as a benign thing. Whereas hmm. FGM there's, there's absolutely no reason to cut away at the clitoris because that's the 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 function of that is sexual pleasure and removing that is going to deny a woman sexual pleasure and it also has a really bad impact on her fertility and and giving birth and urination just all sorts of problems um I, and, and the numbers are really high with that as well whereas with male circumcision On the whole, um, men can uh, go into adulthood and not really have many serious problems if they've Mm -hmm. been circumcised, whereas girls who have been, quote-unquote, circumcised will face so many problems all throughout their
0: lives. There's that activist um, on Twitter whose name I now forget. Um, Name it uh, Kali? No, um, who is a a victim of FGM, and uh, she says... She is in pain every day of her life, oh, mm, physical yes. pain. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, it's true. I, I think that's probably why it's seen as worse than male circumcision. Well, it is Yeah, worse. I met a girl yeah. who who, mm.
1: who had FGM on, on Saturday. She came to speak to me after the the panel. I got rounded on by four hijabis demanding Thank to God. know why I want <laughs> to ban the hijab or the veil. And I was, I was like, I, did, I don't want to ban it. I just want to make fun of it. Um, <laughs> so there was that, but there's another a girl there who's an ex-Muslim and she was saying that she'd, she'd had FGM. Uh, and, mm. you know, I just, I just can't fathom it. It's, uh, it's insane. And I, I keep going back to it. It's only one of them things that seems to get by sensible people because it comes at you under the guise of religious beliefs. And we're a little bit too scared to poke fun or criticize or just outright oppose certain practices and beliefs and opinions because they're, they're packaged in a, in a faith little bubble. Uh, yeah. and I think that's something society could do better to, uh, to shake off.
0: Well, it was really was ironic that, you? that, um, recently, um, What's that plonker's name? Sorry. Um, oh, <laughs> it's, it it's a lot. That doesn't narrow it down, does it? Boris Johnson. Um, oh, yes. yes. So everybody was, people I
1: was talking everyone
0: about. was up in arms about his comparing um, the burka with face veil to, um, to a pillar box. Uh, Or whatever other letterbox letterbox, or whatever, whatever other bank robbers as well. Bank robbers. (laughs) Yes. The old fashioned bank robbers (laughs) Um, that really (laughs) ages (laughs) him. Um, But, you know, he was saying this in the context of he prefaced it by saying that he didn't think it should be banned. Um,
2: and it yes. should just be like ridiculed by society yes. so that it's not seen um, as an acceptable form of
0: dress. I think I agree. In fact, um, I'm, I actually go back and forth on whether I think it should actually be, uh, be banned. Um, because I feel that the face veil, there's something very different about the face veil from other forms of dress. That really, um, both for security in certain situations... Um, and hmm. also, just for ordinary social interaction it um it uh hinders ordinary social interaction so much. I feel that slightly less now uh after having spent time in India because I did actually interact with quite a lot of women who are in veils um so yeah, but you're a woman you can do right that. right um but I feel that um. It's extreme, it's so extremely detrimental to integration.
2: It is. It's, 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 you are literally separating women from everyone else and you're hiding them away. And the purpose of that is you're telling them like you're. You cannot be seen by other people. You're making women invisible in public. How is that not offensive? This
1: issue as well, this entire issue is completely non-existent on the mainstream feminist slate. And to me, if I was a feminist activist consumed by female equality, I tend to notice uh, a community that places women in bags uh, under pressure uh, under you know cultural shame if they don't comply uh, and completely just cut them off from society in numerous ways that that would be chief on my agenda as a, as a western British feminists who cared about female empowerment and equality, but apparently the, the, the strange thing about this is it's worse. It's not like they the neutral on the issue. They'll actually defend it under the guise of female empowerment. It's, a, it's an individual choice. It's, and, um,
0: it's actually one it's of the reasons for, why I'm still, i. I um, it's one of the reasons why I'm still a feminist. Um, and it's one of the yeah. few things on which I uh, disagree with Helen. Um, and, Helen Pluckrose, that is. Um, Will I Helen guess, allow you to say this? <laughs> is this going to get caught out? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Helen
1: so... What, what's the disagreement? Is, is um, Helen, so Helen, I'm assuming, Helen's... Pr-
0: Helen, is, Helen does not consider herself a feminist anymore. She calls herself a gender egalitarian, I believe. Yeah, and,
1: um, yeah, I understand.
0: That is because she feels that in the West there is no longer any need um, to... Um, to specifically stand up for women's rights as opposed to just gender equality in general and i i mm-hmm. disagree on that i think there is still need specifically um to uh, champ- to be a champion of women's rights um uh, even in the west obviously globally this is very ob- this is very clear and obvious if we're looking at the pos- the way in which women are treated in many societies worldwide But just looking at the West, I feel that um, women's rights are under threat from several directions. There's, first of all, the whole kind of trad life um, conservative right, um, and in the U.S., the religious right. Um, And then also on the left, there's this kind of flirtation with cultural relativism, moral relativism, um, around the question of Islam, and I, uh, which I think is really unacceptable. So, that's part of my motivation for still believing that it's necessary to be a feminist. Um, there are a the few other is, you, few I, other issues too, but uh, they're not relevant to religion, so I won't get get into them now. Well,
1: I think the issue is that the term has just become useless in, in the West. I think what what's represented as Modern feminism does actual feminism. Feminism a disservice. So I can understand wanting to take the label away. I used to apply the label of feminist to myself. Uh, and I just it's just something I don't do anymore because it's just too loaded and it's got a huge PR problem. I mean, don't listen to me, straight white male. Most women.
0: In, don't in worry, I'm, country I'm, I'm, I don't. Please ignore you, Stephen? Carry on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But,
2: can we cut that entire section out? Because you know I, he's a man.
0: Yes, we'll cut all of stream out. And, It'll just be you and <laughs> you and I talking, I, Iran.
1: I will not stand <laughs> this matriarchal oppression. Um, but most not, of most you? of the women in my family or loved ones are a strong. Uh, empowered females successful uh won't be told they can't do something because of their sex won't be thought of as a victim they're, they're intelligent they go out there and they, they, they get shit done essentially but uh, so to me they're, they're like archetypal feminists so but if i was to suggest to them that that's what they are their face would scrunch up quicker than you could imagine they can't stand the idea of being thought of as a feminist because that term has been so muddied by this you know it, this popularization of some sort of bizarre third wave uh, feminism, which is obsessed with uh, some sort of figmental patriarchy, and is obsessed with pronouns and whether or not men can say certain things to them, and whether there's a gender pay gap, and all these things that are just just don't seem important to the day-to-day lives of most women. Uh, there it, it, it needs to be something else. So I kind of understand why Helen terms it in a different way i just think the term just got Mm. so loaded which is a shame because feminism is indispensable in general female equality is so important to every single society on the planet Um, but you know
2: um back to this um back to the um whole burqa and niqab debate like women in my own family hate it like they just can't understand why anyone wears it would you call them islamophobic would you call them racist i mean when boris made those remarks um I went home and one of my female relatives just made a comment. She's like, oh, did you hear what Boris said? She goes, it was hilarious, wasn't it? And I was just like, oh, okay, she agreed. She goes, yeah, he's right. They're bloody everywhere as well. And this goes.
1: Sorry, go ahead.
2: And um, mansplaining again, Stephen. Um, (laughs) But it's like everyone in my family, maybe with the exception of one or two, but they just absolutely hate it. Like they can... They can come to terms with the hijab, right? But they just don't see the point of the niqab. They think it looks ridiculous. Um, they think there is no religious justification for it as well, um, and they just don't like it. They, they 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 say it's extreme. Yeah. So you have you have a lot of Muslims actually do feel this way, but unfortunately, um, what you are getting in recent, um, more recently now is that not only are people um, like journalists or commentators not calling out the niqab for what it really is, but they're, you know, they're kind of brushing it under the carpet and almost celebrating it in a way, you know, like, oh yeah, but you know, maybe I wish I had a niqab for like a bad hair day or something. It must be, you know, quite nice to be able to just, um, you know, just put that on top and not have to uh, change out of your pajamas or something. And you think that's you don't understand the ideology behind yeah. the this face veil.
1: This is a huge blind spot because we're celebrating really extreme conservative aspects of Islam that don't represent the general Muslim population in Britain. So we're fetishizing, you know, head head, head scarves and face veils and things like that. And it's akin to propping up the Westboro Baptist Church as um, representative of Christians and celebrating that particular brand of Christianity because like Iram just said it's in a very extreme garment the niqab. it's a very um conservative it, yeah, Islamic even, practice that even most Muslims
2: themselves find it extreme yeah
1: but we're, we're we're having huge national debates about this garment and the general consensus in mainstream left-leaning circles is this is islamic and it should be protect, you know it's it's perfectly fine not that it should be protected because it should be that it's perfectly fine and in fact it's it's beneficial in certain ways and it's actually a, a form of empowerment and uh, we've just got it all backwards we 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 seem to be unable because maybe we're not familiar with the ideology in the same ways we are we've been culturally christian we can we can pick that apart and we know that if somebody believes literally in adam and eve that they're a bit of a crank And we can deal with that accordingly. We know if somebody thinks the earth's 6,000 years old, they're a bit of a lunatic. And we would not reward that kind of belief. We would not reward some sort of creationist museum in the UK with praise and adoration because it's authentically Christian or whatever. But we're not having that same sort of test with the Islamic doctrine because we're just probably not familiar enough with it. And uh, we're sort of seeing conservative and extremely extremist aspects of that religion to be the most authentic versions of it and we were rewarding them as such we sort of we sort of um rewarding the islamist mindset strangely which is just is a suicide as far as i can tell mm.
2: yeah and what they do is some of these like uh quote unquote got community leaders when they come on to talk about the niqab or hijab they always frame it about choice mm. and it, and, and, and human rights and equality. Um, these people do not believe in equality. They don't believe in human rights. They don't believe in choice. Um, and 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 yet their words are taken at face value. Um, they they're adopting the language of liberals to defend something that is so illiberal. Yeah. Um, and I was having a conversation with a, a colleague once. Um, she's white, non-Muslim, and um, she was just, out just outraged.
1: Just yeah, I'm Just say infidel.
2: So, so I was having a chat you with a kafir. So I am having a chat with a kafir. And, <laughs> uh, and, you know, she was just outraged by what uh, Boris had said. And she's like, but, you know, um, I want to... Um, I want to know why these women wear it and I said well this is the reason and I explained that she said I know but like because I'm not from that background um, I, um, I want to know I want to talk to women who wear this and do some research into it I'm like you don't need to and you don't need to do research into something to know whether it's acceptable or unacceptable so yeah, it was just it was just hard trying to get her to explain. I'm like, look, I'm from that background myself. I'm trying to expl- I'm explaining to you why it's worn, the reason for it. It should not be seen as acceptable. It, it, I mean, I'm not saying ban it everywhere. I've always said it should be banned in certain places, yeah. um, where security is at issue and, and and wherever, but not on the streets. Um, but it should not be made acceptable and i know people say that oh but less than one percent of women wear them so what's the problem it doesn't matter it only takes a tiny number to cause damage to something um i mean it's only like a we've only had a tiny number of terrorist attacks and yet look at how what kind of impact that has had on our lives
1: oh iram compares the kneecap to terrorism (laughs) fuck off (laughs) I
2: called all Indian rapists, and now like the is a, uh <laughs> bombers. So yeah, this is this is a great evening for me.
0: Can we end by saying something about by returning to this topic of secularisation and Christianity in the UK? Yeah. Um, do you think that? The Church of England is going to really shrivel away into nothing. And it'll be impossible to keep up this kind of pretense that we must have prayers in every school and things like that. Because just so few people will give a, give a fuck. Um, is that how you <laughs> envisage it? Is that what you envisage happening? Or do you think that there might be a kind of reaction and resurgence, um, in response to people's fears about Islam and immigration. Do you want to just, just take out your crystal balls for a moment and tell me how you, the future you'd like to see in the UK and what you think might happen? Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, I think because the Church of England has already made so many concessions over the years, you know, to stay relevant to its population, you know, allowing uh, women as leaders <gasps> in the church as well. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, we I know. Well, I mean, come on. Have you seen a female imam? No. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, and you know, except being sort of accepting of gay people, I think though they're going to continue um, to to make progress in that way to, to 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 look relevant so that they don't seem outdated. Um, but um, I mean. Uh, religious people on the whole tend to be especially christian i think tend to be older and i can't see many young people keeping up with the faith or joining um so i think eventually i don't know if it will completely go um but i think it's probably heading like fading away um i would i don't know if it's a good thing if it completely goes or not because sometimes it's nice to have say and a, a tradition or two, um, and if it's if it's one like this that's trying to keep up with the population, and and uh, trying to modernise, um, I I think that can be quite good. It's the same with the idea of Islamic reformation. I don't think you're going to completely get rid of religion or Islam. So one stepping stone to that's that what you is think, just Paul. to. Well, yeah. But the one step to that is to reform and make it more relevant to modern times. I mean, maybe eventually in the future, all these institutions and religions might go, but not in my lifetime, no.
1: Um, I think the downward trend of the prominence of Christianity will will continue and they'll become less and less relevant in people's lives. We're already seeing that already. The, the issue I have is the, is the fact that we have an established religion at state level, and that is Christianity, and that's becoming more and more irrelevant as not only people are becoming less religious, but the religious landscape of the country is expanding into various different directions. Anyway, it's not it's not representative. The problem I think we have is unfortunately is that this country is quite big on tradition. I mean, we still have the monarchy for some bizarre reason and that doesn't really serve a function the way it used to always envisioned but it's sort of like a little traditional piece of trivia that we have Uh, and I think the the bishops in the House of Lords will probably remain and the, the state religion being Christianity because it's traditional and it's British. And, and the fact that people are pushing back on Islam with this will play a part in keeping it relevant. Uh, I mean, personally, I think there should be a moratorium on faith schools. I think we should cease publicly funding faith schools immediately until we can decide whether or not it's good for social cohesion and, and children in general. Uh, but I think religion religious effects on day-to-day life will decrease. Certainly Christianity, I think that will carry on but I, I can't see the state disbanding or getting rid of, you know, Christianity is the established religion anytime soon, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't keep pushing for it. And I think it is one way we could get, uh, around that is to speak about it more in the in the language of human rights and religious privilege, and uh, make a better case that secularism is actually best for Christians and, and Muslims and Jews. Uh, uh, and you know, if they don't, you know, if they can demand such power and recognition within the state, there's no reason why any other religion can't do it at a time when they become a de- demographic force.
0: Okay, that's fantastic. I think we will leave it there, and um, thank you both so much for joining me and for being so such um, wonderfully irrepressible guests.
2: Yeah, thank you for, Thanks having, for us. having us. It's
0: Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for Ario magazine. Ario is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and 2 T are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you are listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.